especially given the events that have taken place in our country um, this past weekend and in Charlottesville, Virginia in particular. Let's pray this prayer. It was your delight, Father, to create the one human nature we share in a multiplicity of races. You taught us that all men and women share the triune image you bestow on all persons. Yet forces of division fueled by fear, pride, ignorance, and hatred have plagued our minds and hearts from the moment we fell away from your divine community, waging a war from within and without against the colorful diversity and loving oneness you intended for humanity. Founded on created equality, our nation's actual history mars the beauty of our rich racial difference and denies the full dignity of the divine image in us all. This chasm between our stated ideals and our brutish reality <coughs> saddens, dismays, and angers us. Cause us to repent of participation in a culture that does violence to the wonderful tapestry of human faces, that tears, scorches, and rends the fabric of human unity. We are one human family under your thrice holy and ever enduring love, but our thoughts and actions portray allegiance to the lesser gods of bigotry, injury, apartheid, enmity, and racial supremacy. Help us renounce apathy and silence wherever there's tolerance for an unholy, limited vision of humanity. Give us courage to speak and act in defense of those most at risk of hostility and harm. Come by your spirit and shield all those experiencing injustice, cruelty, and savagery because of race. Come by your spirit and defend those who protect the oppressed, who guard the dignity of your image in all humans. Bring swift justice to those who embrace threats, terror, and bloodshed, who worship violence and death. May these enemies of our common created goodness be visited by angels and converted to the cause of human flourishing revealed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither rich nor poor, and in whom we, together with all creation, hope for universal reconciliation with each other. By you and in you and through your all Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, today we're going to watch a video by James K.A. Smith, and it's about the secular society. I think it's got a lot of talking points. But uh, one of the things that I really like about it is there's some pretty pithy statements in it, too. So kind of, kind of put those in your uh, mind as, as we go through this, because I think there's some things that it really does speak well to the challenge that the church has. does it mean that we live in a secular age or a secular society? And more importantly, the, the question I want to bring to the table this morning is, what does it mean uh, to live there? What is the kind of posture that we should take as we inhabit a secular age? Should we be manning our battle stations in defensive posture, rebuilding the fortresses? Or counterintuitively, could there actually be an opportunity 
in a secular society, in this cultural moment in which we find ourselves, for a new impact that the gospel can make in our contemporary moment. And so what I want to think about with you this morning is, I think it first requires understanding what we mean when we talk about the secular, secularism and a secular age. And you'll forgive me, I'm waiting for my slides to come up. Ah, there we go, my fault. I usually use chalk is the technology that I'm most familiar with. I want to suggest that the secular isn't what you think. <clears throat> there are many ways, it's a slippery term, it's used in all kinds of different ways, and uh, usually the way we use the term is it refers to a view or institution or maybe sometimes a person that we call secular, and what we mean is that it's allegedly neutral, unbiased, objective, capital R, rational, and above all, and because of that, a religious. So the word secular, as we use it, especially in our contemporary context and modernity, has this sense of the a-religious neutrality of a kind of rational perspective. If that's the working definition of secular, then secularism is the kind of doctrine or dogmatic requirement that says our public squares, our public discourse, has to be governed by rules that are themselves allegedly neutral, unbiased, objective, scientific, capital R, rational, and above all, a religious. So that perspective is now supposed to govern our public sphere and our political discourse and our institutions. And then there's a third theme that goes along with this, which is, so you've got a definition of the secular, you've got secularism as a sort of dogmatic stance, and then the secularization thesis or secularization theory was this predictive theory that said that we should expect a society that is um, advancing in technology, advancing in scientific knowledge, becoming increasingly capitalist, will become diminishingly religious and therefore secularized. Now, here's the problem with all three of those framings of the secular. The first, that there is a neutral, unbiased, objective, capital R, rational standpoint is a myth. And one of the most important developments in philosophy over the past 30 to 40 years has been the round debunking of that entire myth of a secular standpoint, and not just from religious voices. But the second problem with this kind of secular or secularist take on our contemporary moment is that it doesn't make sense of the complexity of the age in which we find ourselves. Secularism does not do justice to the features of the secular age in which we find ourselves. And so both of these have come under challenge. So what I want us to do is reframe and re-understand what it means to be secular. And my suggestion is that this actually will give us a more nuanced complex understanding of the world in which we find ourselves. I think we have an opportunity to listen carefully to our contemporary cultural moment, and we will be surprised 
to hear persistent, enduring <clears throat> longings for transcendence and fullness that the new atheists would never, ever, ever expect. My suggestion is that a secularist account of our contemporary age doesn't do justice to the peculiar longing and hungers that still characterize a secular age. Listen for the cracks in the secular. Let me give you a couple of examples. My first example is one of my favorites. It's a British novelist named Julian Barnes, who uh, is, is uh, one of the sort of greats of his generation. Julian Barnes is a poster child for a kind of secularized society. He will, he will be the first to tell you he never grew up in the church, has never even been to religious services, has no religious experience whatsoever. And yet in 2008, when he published a memoir, powerful memoir, called Nothing to be Frightened of, time and time again, he said this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Friends, I want to suggest that that dynamic, the messy complexity of that curious dynamic says more about what it is to live in a secular society than anything Richard Dawkins has ever claimed. And so there's a, a complexity of this weird sort of enduring hunger and longing and sense of loss that you will hear if you have ears to hear. Let me get one other example that comes to mind. We were listening to uh, the postal service in our room before we came here. Listen, listen to popular music lyrics, and, and I would suggest pretty much anything that Ben Gibbard has ever written fits here. On the postal service album, there's a song called Clark Gable in which you will hear this lyric. I won't sing it at you. I want so badly to believe that there is truth and love is real, and I want life in every word to the extent that it's absurd. Right? Do you hear the openness and hunger, maybe nostalgia, maybe melancholy, but an interesting longing? For, I think the question that we need to ask ourselves if you want to understand a secular age is, why does it still seem haunted? What's happening here? Why didn't, why didn't secularization theory expect this? Now, does this mean that we're not secular? Does this mean that, oh no, it's not a secular society? No, what it means is we have to redefine the term secular. And so let's not equate a secular society with one that is characterized pervasively by unbelief. It's not a prediction of unbelief. Instead, a secular society is a society in which we all experience the contestability of our belief. A shift to a secular society is a shift to a society in, what, in, in, in which the plausibility conditions have changed. What we mean by that is that what's believable has changed. And what that uh, feels like is to inhabit a society in which on your street you know that there are people who don't believe what you believe. And they're good people, and they're smart people, and you all realize that what you believe can't be taken to be axiomatic and the default for a society anymore. We have to face up to what Charles Taylor calls this fragilization of our belief, right? The re we realize that our beliefs are contested and contestable. And that means everybody in a secular age is going to experience what Taylor calls this cross-pressure experience. We're going to feel tugged and pushed and pulled and pressed by alternative rival stories of who we are and what we're for. 
Now, I think there are very important implications of that. The first is an implication for the church, which is the church has to be honest that doubt is not the enemy of faith. It is a companion of faith. We are all Thomas now in a secular society. And I think if the church doesn't have the courage to be honest about that, then uh, a, a rising generation who feels this cross pressure is going to feel like we are hiding something. But secondly, and this is the opportunity, if in a secular society, in a secular age where belief is contested, if believers are subject to this temptation to doubt, but everybody is cross pressured, then that means that unbelievers are tempted to believe. The doubters doubt is faith. And there is an opening and an opportunity here. And a third implication that I want us to take seriously is, it also means that in some ways, secularism, dogmatic, aggressive, doctrinaire secularism, does not own up to the contestability of its own belief. In some unique way, secularism is actually insufficiently secular. And I think that there's a reason why that secularism becomes so dogmatic and so aggressive it is precisely because the emperor will protest how beautiful his raiments are precisely when the doubt sets in. That, the, that the, the vehemence of an aggressive secular stance might itself be an interesting symptom of the doubts about it. And so I want us again to see this as an opening, as a crack in the secular that shows us an interesting opportunity. Now, there is a second feature that characterizes a secular age that I think we have to take seriously, and it's the dynamics of disenchantment. And here is where I think the church needs to do some of its own stock taking. It, to live in a secular age is to live in a sort of disenchanted world in which the cosmos has been flattened and we are enclosed in what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. What happens is, is, is we've sort of unhooked the cosmos from its creator. And in many ways, we have to be honest that the Protestant Reformation was one of the engines that drove this disenchantment. That perhaps unintentionally, all kinds of aspects of the fallout from the Reformation kind of flattened the world, left us with the sterility of a naturalism, and it evacuated the cosmos of mystery and transcendence. And here's the problem, it did the same thing to Christianity. It flattened Christianity. It enclosed us in this kind of claustrophobic lecture hall. The church becomes this box where brains on a stick receive information in messages. And we flatten Christianity in a dynamic that Taylor calls excarnation. We disembodied it. It became less communal, less material, less sacramental. This is where another opportunity presents itself. Because when our neighbors who are experiencing the flatness and deposity and, and, and uh, um, sort of uh, uh, um, poverty of a flattened, disenchanted world, they are not going to be attracted to another box. They're not going to be attracted by another version of a sort of flattened, disenchanted universe. What they'll be attracted to is precisely an enchanted Christianity. So in You Are What You Love, what I argue is that I think the future of the church is ancient. 
And that in a secular age, what we actually have is an opportunity for the church to recover its incarnate, embodied, liturgical, practiced, uh, uh, sacramental, enchanted spirituality, which will be precisely the kind of Christianity that has a draw and a pull on those who are feeling a haunting. What might stop people short is not another version of a TED Talk. What's going to haunt them, what's going to hook them, is going to be religious communities that have punched skylights in our brass heaven and brings them into an embodied, communal, enchanted space where all of a sudden they realize that the cosmos is charged with the grandeur and glory of God. There's this fantastic painting by El Greco that hangs in the Metropolitan Museum in Manhattan. It's called The Vision of St. John, and it's based on the passage in uh, Revelation chapter 6 about the unleashing of the fifth seal. This painting, you would never guess it, was actually completed in 1614. And yet it looks like the kind of thing that could have been painted in France in 1920. It's an incredible work in which you see this, this powerful biblical vision of the martyrs who bore faithful witness are now given white robes while John looks heavenward towards the epiphany of the Lamb. But here's the weird thing about if you go see this at the Met, the canvas that you see is actually a fragment. In the late 1800s, in the name of improving the work, in fact, they cut off 175 centimeters from the top of the canvas. Almost five feet of the painting was lopped off of the top. And in this name of restoration and improvement, what now happens is a kind of parable of a secular age. The exultant arms of John the Revelator reach upward to nothing, to the top of the frame, to the edge of the canvas. The martyrs who seem to be receiving gifts receive them from who? No one. And John seems to praise the non-existent. All of them seem to look for something that is no longer there. Well, what if our modernist, secularist projects of improvements and advancement and disenchantment have actually severed us from what makes for a flourishing society? While some might be railing against the myths of what lies beyond the frame, friends, many others might be asking, what's up? Our calling in a secular age might be less a matter of securing our status and more a matter of bearing witness to what's missing. Especially to those who are feeling the claustrophobia of that imminent frame. And we might be surprised at the response. There are cracks in the secular. Some of you, I'm sure, know the Leonard Cohen song anthem. Great stanza. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I'm suggesting that our posture in the face of a secular age shouldn't be to rebuild fortresses in fear. We should be the people who are rebuilding cathedrals of hope which are open, hospitable spaces of welcome that invite people to see what's beyond the frame, what's been left off, 
the transcendent that has been knocking on the doors of their hearts and haunting them all of this time. Let's be the generation who plant gardens in the cracks of the secular. Thank you. I love that last phrase, let's be the generation that plants gardens in the cracks of the secular. Um, there were so many different topics <laughs> that are raised by this, and I think it's really a good one because of the fact that I think it does make us maybe unflatten our faith. Um, what were your observations? What did you hear in this? I think it struck me the most is the, the point that if, if the secular is doubting the religious or the non-secular, then obviously we should be able to doubt the secular. And and there's there's cracks in the secular. So if if it goes one way, it can go the other way. And I never really picked up that point. Yeah, there's a searching and a longing for something that has been lost, yeah. I believe. What else? Yeah. I'm not sure what he was saying, but I think I disagree with him. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to make a difference between the secular society and the secular government. I mean, he never mentioned the other one. But it seems like if if this promotes a longing toward religion, faith, whatever, however you want to describe it, then there is, is there seems to be this strong tendency to move towards some sort of a modified theocracy rather than a uh, uh, secular free government that works for everyone. Yeah, I don't think he's talking about the government in C. I think he's talking about the, the whole nature of society and the Can you separate the two? Place there. That, that would be the, the question that I would have an issue with. Can you separate the two? And do you move toward a theocracy if, you, if your faith is really that strong? And one is a subset of the other. The government is a subset of the entire society. So, that's, that's my option. You can separate, but one is the And I think it's interesting to note that the church grew in the first century in opposition to society, not through society. No, yeah, but they addressed so many different issues within the society. It wasn't something that was separated from it. Uh, yeah. I think, um, I don't know, I, don't, I can't really speak for other faiths traditions or other branches of Christianity, but we, we in the Church of Christ and the Restoration, we kind of have had our experiment with rationalism, you know, with the, 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 uh, the sort of the John Locke in the one hand and the Bible in the other, um, and I'm not sure it's been a successful experiment, and I, I, I've, I've seen it Otter Creek in the last 10 years or whatever, um, a lot of folks, um, through things like Vespers and classes on uh, contemplative faith and um, introducing another side, a transcendent side of faith. And um, 
I love it, and I'm fascinated by it because it's not the faith I grew up on. Um, and I think that's what he's saying here is that that transcendency, that uh, the mystery is something that a rational world um, doesn't offer. And it's, a, it's an offering that's fully Christian and fully legitimate that we can offer. That's the garden we can plant in the cracks of secularism. And so I've seen that happen here at Otter Creek, and it's been great. Um, yeah, I, I think, especially with John Locke and the pursuit that we did, it was more Christianity. It was a mentality, a mind kind of game, and didn't always, well, I mean, eventually we, we kind of left out the Holy Spirit and the direction of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me for you that went to uh, Josh's sermon this morning, how as this really connects with a lot of the things that Josh was saying. I have one theory in the fact that I think what we're experiencing today in the, the political world and the reactions and everything else is this a pushback against the secular society in the sense of people are looking for a story that's bigger than themselves. And sometimes that falls incredibly short of anything that's worthwhile pursuing. The idea of the fact that there's a particular race that's greater than anybody else or the, the different kinds of conflicts that we're experiencing today and therefore I think the church really does have a place where we can plant those gardens in the cracks of secularism because it is not just people are not looking for something that has nothing they want something they want a story that's bigger than themselves the problem is is we have not been living that story out in a way that creates a full vision of what God's calling is the discipleship what's the last time you've heard brains on a stick twice in one day as a scientist um, by training and um, profession I, I get to the point where I get to the end of human beings explanation of something and that's where you know faith comes in for me and says this is something bigger than us, bigger than me, uh, you know, this is the guy who, the person who, uh, the being who is in our lives and works in our lives and also created the cosmos, and, <coughs> you know, I think everyone is searching for that, you know, all humans are searching for that in some way, and, you know, some are doing it in, in different ways, we all have our own religion, you know, internalized religion, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or you know Muslim, um, we're all searching for something, and I feel like that's the crack. Is that even though you may have uh, an agnostic or an atheist saying no, this is the way it is, or a white supremacist saying this is the way it is, there's a crack there, and they're you know that place to for us to interject into their lives. Um, I don't know that I agree with the going back to ancient, you know, going back to the building cathedrals. Um, would be the answer, but I guess that's for discussion. Well, I think for what you were talking about was more metaphoric. Yeah. 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 Well, I thought I thought it was interesting, and I think it leads to an introspection of how I defend what I believe. And the stronger my defense is it in reaction to the doubt about my own belief about X. Mm -hmm. I right. grew up in a very 
conservative time during the church where it, you know, doubt was not allowed. If doubt, if you had doubt, out the door. You know, that's that's kind of the whole idea is because it, surely you could understand that it says this and it means this. And so, and if you didn't, well, then you, you don't belong, right? So, and I'm grateful that there are generations that don't haven't grown up with that, but some of us did. But the idea is, even today, and he talked about it on both sides, of how strong their argument is for this, is it more than likely a reaction to the doubt that they have about their own beliefs and their own set of values and doing that. So it causes, for me, introspection of how strong am I take, whether it be a theological part, whether it's a point, or it be a secular point, or whatever it happens to be, is that if I get really worked up and really strong, I have to think about, well, do I really have some doubt, and is it just time to shut up? Instead of saying, I'm gonna put my thing out there because if I talk loud enough, if I talk strong enough, if I'm overbearing enough, then people will think I really, you know, I know what I'm doing. And it may just be doubt is trying to compensate for this. Yeah. Yes. I, I uh, <laughs> when he was talking about the cracks and the secularism, it made me think of a thought that I had this morning. Because you hear in the news all the time about, um, sexual harassment stuff that's going on that's just like systemic and um, institutional in lots of different companies. And without God, without religion, you know, what is the motivation to be good and decent? And, and I was just thinking about how in, in secular society, why would anybody ever be surprised that things like that go on. If we're just accidents in nature and you know we're just animalistic, then you know what what's the motivation to be good and not do things like sexual harassment and that kind of thing? And I don't you know somebody might hear that and think, well, what about the golden rule? Just treat others the way you want to be treated. It's like that's not a secular concept. That's from Jesus. And I'm sure that. If I thought about it some more, maybe there's some arguments why someone who's secular would think that there is motivation to be good and decent. But, you know, as a Christian, I know where my motivation comes to treat others well. And, and so I don't know if that counts as a crack in secularism. I think living out that life in a way that fills the <coughs> Wayne Reed Center and some of the other things that we are doing within society is, is putting that garden in the cracks so that it's not just an intellectual pursuit that we're doing, but it's actually trying to live it out. Yeah, you had a comment. Uh, I, well, I, one of the things that I guess about this conversation that I find interesting is that like there's this theme of a, of a they, like a secular they, and a, a religious us. <laughs> and uh, and we're, it's like a, it's com, it feels combative and, and, and separate, and there's a them, and they're totally don't believe in God. But I'm, I'm you know, I'm part, you know, we've got this religious thing going on, which makes us right and them wrong. Um, but when you think about, uh, there was only one person who touched the face of this earth who had zero secularism in him, and it was Jesus. The rest of us struggle with secularism every day. I am not the man that I should be. I am not perfect. I struggle with the same thing that, that they, the secular, struggle with as well. And I feel like 
creating a, a vague secular versus an us who struggle with the world, who struggle with those same beliefs, those same actions, those same temptations, um, creates a, a, a gap and a, and a viewpoint of, of, of other people that divide us um, versus us entering into a relationship, entering into community, entering into uh, interactions with those um, who we deem to be the them. Uh, you know, we, I don't know, just the conversation feels like it, it, there's two forces combating, but we live in it. This is us. The secularism, we are secular by nature because there is evil within us. We are not perfect. Um, and so I, I think having that mindset and maybe changing the way that we view the people who maybe don't go to church every day or haven't had the same opportunities um, can help build bridges and, and find those cracks because to his point, I have cracks too and, and my cracks are big, um, my doubt is big, um, my weaknesses are big um, and, and how I can use those to enter in community um, versus saying a them, it's view it as an us in a way. I don't know, I rambled there, but the the, the language that we were using felt very combative and very exclusive um, when I don't necessarily think that, that Jesus saw the world as a them versus us kind of deal. And I think that's what he was addressing with the idea of faith and doubt. That faith and doubt is also part of the Christian life. And to deny that makes us something other than what we are. Uh, the, the struggle that we have is the same struggle that everybody else has. Uh, but then again, we shouldn't label the others of having this, not having those same kind of struggles of being completely, because we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And our, we're more a product of our society than we'd love to, uh, to admit. Yes? Um, I was just thinking about a video a while back where, and I don't mean to speak for where he was talking about how if we believe that we are all created in the image of God, that we all have that image of God in us. And so, I mean, that's the crack in the secular world. I mean, just like, you know, you can also talk about, like, as a faithful person, maybe I have doubt, but in the secular world, there's that image of God that's, that's in each person. Yeah. And so it's struggling to get out and find meaning, and whether that's, I mean, I see it revealed in the world as, you know, everybody's search for some kind of community or cause that's bigger than themselves. They, you know, and what's happened, I feel like, is Christianity has, like you said, become flat. It's become one of the voices rather than elevated above the voices. Um, and so we're seen as just one other option that maybe isn't living up to what it professes. And so instead of rising above the fray and being this elevated voice, we've just become one of the others. And so when people are seeking to let this image of God come out, this image of God that's, you know, this little niggly feeling inside of them that says, I want to be bigger than what I, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I want community. I want love. I want justice. I want whatever. Sometimes the church doesn't seem to be the answer to that. So they, you know, and it's not saying the things they're pursuing are bad things or, good, you know, it's just that I think that sometimes the church hasn't, hasn't risen above, like what you said, hasn't become elevated, hasn't. And sometimes that rising above might mean we need to be more confessional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciated his imagery with a painting of the, the fact that we have been looking at this one piece of art that was boxed in 
when actually the artist wanted something much bigger. And I think we do that with God so often. We look at our life and we think that this is exactly the way we're supposed to live our life. This is exactly what we're supposed to think. And those of us who grew up in Church of Christ, this is the next slide to hit the button to prove to some of our neighbor that that's going to bring them to Christ. When the truth is, we can see God in the mountains. We can see God beyond the frame of what our picture of God is. That our neighbor may see God in a way that we can't see God in this frame because that's how we see God. But our neighbor can see God in some way totally different. And that could be the, the bond that brings us together beyond just the differences. And, and the other thing about that is the fact that it's about the revelation of St. John and how the revelation, and we want to think, we want to look at revelation, and we want to look at and figure out all these different, uh, what this means for us today. And I'm just thinking, if we had someone who was not a believer, Look at that. What would that? What would they say about that painting? What would you know? And let's let's hear what someone else sees about our God that we just assume because we grew up. If those of us who grew up in the church just assume that we know. And so I think as we're, he also made this point that I appreciate it. Whereas we're walking down the street, we can't make the assumption that the person next to us thinks and believes the same thing that we do, and that's hard to do. Because we want people, we want to feel like we're a part of something, but sometimes our differences is what makes us united. Yeah. I think one other thing that really amazes me is, especially reading in the Old Testament, you have um, Abraham going into Egypt, and it takes a Pharaoh to name Abraham's lack of faith. And so you have this situation where, and, and sometimes we think more of ourselves than we ought to think. Sometimes we need maybe to listen harder to society, listen harder to the ones around us because it reveals things within us that need to be changed through. And so that's that dialogue, that open dialogue that takes place. We're out of time. Uh, thank you for coming, and we will see you next week.